Hello and welcome to our Secular Overeaters podcast series, where you'll hear from speakers who have found recovery from food and other addictions without God. For additional information, go to secularovereaters.org. And now let's get to today's podcast. It's now my great pleasure to introduce our speaker, Jeffrey Munn. Jeffrey is a licensed psychotherapist located in California. He is the author of Staying Sober Without God, The Practical 12 Steps to Long-Term Recovery from Alcoholism and Addictions. He has worked with addicts both in and out of 12-step programs for 15 years and is himself an active member of the recovery community. Jeffrey will speak for 30 minutes and then we'll have questions. We're absolutely thrilled to have you here and go ahead and take it away. Thanks so much. Um, thank you for inviting me to speak. Um, I, uh, I am grateful to be able to participate and contribute to um, my own recovery and anyone else's recovery in, in any way possible. Um, I guess I'll start with uh, what it was like, what happened and what it's like now. Um, and for me, this is, I, I did not go to many OA meetings, although I will say uh, food has and continues to be a constant source of comfort seeking for me. And I have gone back and forth with it uh, all my life, really. Um, and it's uh you know, I, I think I would very much qualify for this program. Um, so, uh, so I, I relate to a lot of what I hear, uh, when I do come to these meetings. Um, so, you know, for me, my, my primary addiction was drugs and alcohol. And, um, I started using pretty, pretty late in life, but I, I knew that I was an addict because I, I was craving alcohol and drugs before I had ever tried them, you know, and I've heard some people describe alcoholism and addiction as this invisible line that's crossed at some point due to the use of the substance or whatever addictive, uh, whatever addictive thing is being used. And that wasn't really the case for me. There was a component of that. But for the most part, I mean, I, I wanted to escape right away. And when I found out that alcohol and other drugs could make me feel different, I was like, oh, I'm all about that. Feeling different sounds like an excellent thing. Um, and so I sought that uh, wherever I could. And, uh, you know, I, I suppose one of the ways I was fortunate was that my addiction didn't go very powerfully into any one hard drug. It just was whatever would get me out of um, where I was currently. Um, but when I started, I had, I, I really, I really went for it. I didn't want to just feel a little bit different. I didn't want to just take the edge off. I wanted to be in a, in an alternate reality. Um, and so I did that. I did that for a very long time for, a, for a very intensely for not a very long time. Um, but it, I was such a profoundly low functioning addict that luckily I hit bottom pretty quick. I hit bottom pretty quick. I mean, I would, you know, I would quit jobs. So I would have more time to use. And I, you know, just, I, I was very, very low functioning addict. Um, couldn't leave the house. And, uh, you know, to, to an extent, I'm actually very grateful for that because, because it, it woke me up really early and I, and I realized I, I can't, I cannot do this. Um, and one of the things that I always mention when I when I speak at meetings, and especially when I speak at meetings that I've been invited to because of my book, is I do not view myself as someone who ha who's an authority on other people's addiction, addiction in general, necessarily. Um, I think I know more than some because I have both my own personal experience as well as clinical experience. Um, but I, a lot of my own recovery, I think was due to, um, due to privilege and luck 
and things that, you know, I did not author myself. For example, I, uh, in a different set of circumstances, I I may very well be dead or in jail right now. Um, You know, I was fortunate to have a family with some means to get me into rehab and programs and things like that. And a, a lot, if not most people don't have those resources. And I understand that. And so there's no you know, I, I always want to make sure early on that I'm not giving anyone the impression that like, I I did it. So why can't you like, I understand people are in very different situations. And, and for those of you who have read my book, um, I I hope to make it very clear in there that um, it's a very individual thing. And what I write about in the book is what I did and my interpretation of the program that makes sense to me. I do not bash any approaches to recovery that work. Um, And I do not claim that my recovery approach will work for everybody. There are no guarantees in there. It's just if, if this approach speaks to you, if my experience speaks to you and gives you some strength and hope and helps you recover, awesome. If it doesn't, I am so okay with finding something else. Um, so luckily I, I hit bottom pretty quickly. Um, the first time I, I hit sort of my, and when I say I hit bottom for me, that's an emotional, that's an internal thing. Um, my, what rock bottom looked like for me was very, would not make a great TV show. It was not very exciting. You know, I, there was no, no arrests. You, it's very hard to get arrested if you don't leave the house. Uh, there were no arrests, no, um, you know, no, no major medical incidents or anything like that other than a chemical burn due to, you know, smoking hard drugs and things like that. But uh, really very uneventful. It was an emotional bottom. It was, it was a, it was a, internal state of like, I, I, I am just, I, this is not going to work anymore. It was the tipping point where the, the pain of the addiction had finally outweighed the anticipated pain of finding a different lifestyle. And so I, um, I got sober through meetings first um, but I was very much one of those like, oh, no, I'm only here for this one drug because this was the drug that, you know, this was the drug behavior that caused me the most problems. So this is the problem. You know, I didn't quite yet understand that all of my addictions and addictive behaviors really had a, a really had a common root. And so, you know, I, I went about a year and a half. Um, not using drugs, but, you know, eating, um, you know, my own, you know, sex and love addiction stuff and all, all stuff that is technically outside issues for this meeting. So I apologize if, if it's, uh, if it's crossing a boundary for anybody, but, um, it's part of my story. And so after about a year and a half, I was like, well, maybe I can just do X, Y, and Z and, you know, and not do my main addictive stuff and I'll be fine. And I did. And it was a very, very short period of time before I was back to doing what I was doing before. And at that point I realized, okay, all right, my addiction is my addiction. It's this many headed beast that, you know, once it's awakened, it's, it's there and it's, uh, it's, uh, dictating my life. And so that this time I was fortunate enough to be able to go to a uh, an inpatient rehab. And luckily this place had some incredible therapists and and that was when I decided I wanted to become a therapist because I saw these these individuals in in action and 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 talking about things that I didn't even know could be talked about. Um you know, learning how to articulate my own my own feelings, my own experiences, my own needs in ways that I never learned before, certainly didn't learn from my parents, also did not learn 
much about it in meetings, although, you know, it depends on the meeting and everything. So I don't want to knock meetings, but it was, it was a new level of sort of awareness of my emotional life, how my feelings and my thoughts impact my behaviors. And so uh, I decided that I wanted to become a therapist. And um, I, at about, I think I was about a year sober, two years sober, I decided I'm going to, I'm going to try and become a therapist. And so I went to school and I did all that. And, and I had this, I had, again, I was privileged with the opportunity to be in 12 step meetings and also be in therapy and also be becoming a therapist. So I kind of was able to see it from a lot of different angles. And I have been a lifelong agnostic at least. Um, but you know, when I, when I first started attending 12 step meetings, I really wanted to give the God thing a try. Everyone was, it seemed everyone was doing it. I uh, clearly am prone to peer pressure. And so I'm like, okay, all right. You you guys say there's something to this. I'm going to do it. I'm going to try. I'm going to hit my knees in the morning. I'm going to do all the things. And I did. And I, and you know, I won't say I saw no benefit from it. I think there is something just emotionally um, satisfying about starting your day off with some sort of reflection or, you know, stating of intentions, things like that. I actually like the idea of prayer a lot. I just no longer am trying to force myself to believe that there's some entity that's listening and then will directly intervene in my life if I, if I do it right. Um, so I, um, where was I? I lost my train of thought. I wanted to do the God thing at first. And the, the phrase that I use is it just felt like I was trying to shoehorn it into my recovery. The more, the more I tried to do it, the more it felt like just something that wasn't natural to me, that didn't make sense to me. And I was trying to force it into my program because it was supposed to be there. You know, everyone's telling me that this is supposed to be part of your program. And, and not only that, but it it's a, an essential part of my program. And if I don't do this, I'm going to die. And, you know, so there's a lot of pressure to take a faith-based approach. And, um, but it just wasn't, uh, it wasn't, it wasn't helpful for me but I saw that it was helpful for a lot of other people. And I believed, I had my own beliefs about why that was, because um, to me on a, on a psychological level, a lot of what people were describing as spiritual experiences and the results of prayer and meditation and things like that, a lot of them made sense to me through a psychological lens, you know, I was able to see, I was, I I was able in my own head to kind of interpret these things and be like, okay, well, when you're experiencing this, I mean, I've experienced something like that before, but for me, it was, you know, my understanding of what it was, was that I was feeling connected to something bigger than myself. I don't think it was that someone was actually, you know, reaching down and making me feel something or anything like that. So I just saw it through, I was able to for my own sanity in the program, I was able to translate a lot of what I was hearing into secular language for myself. And it's all made sense. And I, and I started to find that, you know, not believing in God was not a deal breaker for the program. I could, I could not believe in, you know, a, a, a Abrahamic Judeo-Christian God and still get a lot out of meetings and get a lot out of recovery and still work the steps and still do, you know, what I needed to do to get well. Um, and, you know, I just sort of, I was thinking about it all the time when I was in meetings. And I, I feel like this book just sort of, the book that I wrote was just sort of written before, you know, before I had ever written it. It just needed to get out onto paper because this is stuff I'd been thinking about and kind of translating in my own head for a long time. And and really the the biggest compliment that I get about the book is when people say like, oh, you just made it make sense, which was entirely, that was my whole point is I wanted it to just make sense for somebody who didn't share that worldview of, of there being a supreme being that's uh, interacting with us. 
Um, and so I've been able to maintain a, a good amount of, uh, recovery and, and sobriety. Um, the food thing is still, uh, it's still a constant battle. I have my, I have my moments where I do, I do well with it. I have moments where, you know, my, my wife is also, um, recovering and she is in OA and we both sometimes have, you know, mutual relapses, um, which is very tough. If, if one's partner is not on the exact same, you know, wavelength as you, um, as I'm sure some of you have experienced. Um, so, so that's still been, been a bit of a struggle and I, you know, I still, I still seek ways to escape. And so I'm, I'm by no means completely free of any addictive behavior. And I'm not sure I've, I'm not sure I've met anybody who is, um, but if you, you know, if you are, please come talk to me after the meeting. I'm be fascinated to meet you. You know, I, I still self-soothe in ways, but I'm not destroying my life. You know, I have a beautiful daughter and um, I have a, a marriage that uh, I, I feel is, you know, a, a, an extremely healthy relationship and we make good partners and um, run the household well together and also have actual human connection and intimacy, which was something I was never good at before. And, um, you know, so I feel like it's really been, it's, it's really been a, 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 I've benefited a lot from a secular approach to recovery. And so I do know that if I can, then other people might be able to, maybe not everybody, but you know, that was proof to me that it was possible. And that's what gave me the uh, confidence to write about it and actually share that with other people. Because I'm, I'm not, I, as you'll, as you may continue to discover, especially during like the q and I don't like to speak in absolutes, generally speaking. I don't like to speak in absolutes. I like to, you know, I, 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 I don't like to make claims unless I'm absolutely sure they're true. And so, so you know, when I found out for myself that I could do this without believing in God, I was like, okay, that means it is possible. And that's all I'm going to say in my book. That's the only thing I have proof of right now is that it's, it happened for me. So it's possible. And it's very unlikely that I'm the only person on the planet that this approach is going to work for. So it's going to work for some people, I think. And that was enough of a reason to write about it. Um, and so that's, that's where the book came from. And it's been, it's been really just, you know, incredible to see people resonate with it and, and read it and, you know, read back sentences that I wrote to me and, you know, and say like, this was really, this made a lot of sense. And, and that's just the best compliment that I can get is that it makes sense. Cause that's what I, that's what I needed. I'm a very sort of, I'm a very concrete, very literal analytic type person. And there was a big push in program to, to deny that part of myself. And I, you know, I'm sure many of you have heard at some point the, you know, the phrase, you like, you're too smart for your own good, or you can be too smart for your own good in program. And I just hated that. I mean, I think it's natural to hate that, but I really hated it. <laughs> I was like, no, that, that that doesn't make, no, it's not bad to be smart. I think what's, ba what's bad is to be maybe arrogantly smart or to, or to be closed-minded and, and, you know, not open to new information. Um, but I wanted to find a way that I could integrate my understanding of the world with also just my emotional and you know, mental, the changes that need to occur in recovery, if that makes sense. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm just, I'm grateful. I'm grateful that I get to talk to people about this stuff. I, um, I really don't like talking about myself. I've always been bad. I'm like, I, whenever somebody shares, uh, whenever somebody invites me to share, I'm always just like, can we just do Q and A? I love Q and A. I can answer questions all day long when I'm I just have to sit and talk about myself. It just feels so icky. And, you know, it's like my 
humility and my narcissism are fighting with each other. And it's just, <laughs> it's just weird. Um, so, so anyway, that's, that's my story. Again, not, not super exciting. It was all just sort of an internal journey to finding a, a version of recovery that made sense to me and worked for me and was sustainable. Something where I didn't feel like I was being inauthentic because that eventually led to burnout. You know, if I felt, if I was forcing myself to sort of recover in a way that other people were recovering, but didn't feel authentic to me, I would eventually grow resentful and I would eventually stop attending meetings or I would get really like, just, I would be the one in meetings, just like scoffing and rolling my eyes and stuff like that. And it's, and now I still roll my eyes occasionally at meetings, but you know, it's much easier for me to be like, okay, that's, that's their cool. Like, it's fine. That's their thing because I'm okay. I have learned to accept that my approach is okay for me, you know? Um, and sure it helps when other people are like, Hey, I'm doing it too. And it works for me. Yeah, that's great validation. But what I really need is to see, look at my own life and see that it's, it's, it's born fruit. Is that the right word? It's bared born, whatever. I, I, gave me fruit. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, that's, uh, that's pretty much all I have for the, for the sharing portion. I don't know. How did I do? How long did I go? That was uh, about 20 minutes. Um, okay. All right. Yeah. Good job. Two thirds. Um, you have an opportunity if you want to talk about your book and the contents of your book and maybe how it's structured or how you think people might be able to use it. Or if you'd like, we can go straight into um, question and answer. Yeah, I could talk about that. I mean, I don't know. I'm not, I haven't met any of you, so I'm not sure who has read my book, who hasn't. I don't know. Oh, <laughs> I love it. And holding up a copy of my book. That's still a very surreal experience. Um, so, you know, what's funny though, too, is I, every time I go to one of these, every time I do one of these talks, um, people want me to sort of walk through the steps and I need to see the steps because I haven't memorized my own steps because I haven't gone to meetings where they're reading them. I realized going to meetings and having the steps read over and over was so important for remembering the steps because I haven't even memorized my own steps. I have a general idea of what each one stands, for, what each one, what the wording is, but I like, I'll miss words here and there and everything. So uh, I probably need to get a copy of my book, but just generally speaking, I'm not going to go through each, each step, you know, verbatim and everything, but, you know, generally speaking, I wanted to, rather than just rewriting the steps without God in it, um, I wanted to try and identify the psychological process that was going on and put that into simple terms and replace God with that in there. So, so for an example, for example, you know, step three is the most gaudy of the steps in my opinion, or at least one of the most uh, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God. I mean, that's, it, it, that's a hundred percent God. It's you're just giving everything to God. So it's a very, that was one of the more challenging steps to secularize and um, I was like, what's, what's going on there? And, and, I, and I realized that one of the things we always talk about in therapy as just, and, and it's talked about in meetings too, it's the serenity prayer. But one of the things that always is talked about in therapy and, and just in general psychology and self-care is the ability to let go of things that you can't control is acceptance. And there's, a, there's, you know, if any of you have been in therapy or recently or are currently in therapy, you may know that there's this wave, this third wave of therapy that's very intensely focused on mindfulness, radical acceptance, being present. It's very sort of Buddhist in nature without any of the supernatural stuff. Um, and it's just so, it's so, so crucial. And I feel like that was a big part of uh, step three was, okay, I'm going to do this. It's a commitment. I'm going to do this work and I'm going to let go of what I can't control. I'm going to just focus on my own side of the street. I'm just going to focus on doing the step, doing, you know, putting in the footwork, doing the steps 
And what I can't control is none of my business. And that to me felt like, you know, for me, felt like an adequate secular way to phrase that we're turning our will and our lives over to the care of God. We're giving ourselves to the process and letting go of trying to control things that we can't control because that leads to, you know, insanity and stress and everything bad. Um, and, uh, oh, yeah, a lot of the steps are, are very much the same. Uh, just maybe simplify it a little bit. Like we, you know, writing lists. Uh, one of the things that I changed, uh, was in, in the, in step four, they have you write a separate list for sexual harms, which I felt was a little bit archaic. I mean, it almost, it, it almost, uh, reinforces the shame around sexual behavior to make it a separate list. Like it's this, like, oh, then we wrote the sex, the sex list. And it's like, our harms are our harms and it's important to include sexual behaviors in our harms, but I didn't want to make that a whole separate thing that you put over here and lock in a safe and hide in your wall. Um, so, uh, so there's that. And then, um, you know, a big focus of, of my book and, and all that is, uh, and, and my steps is surrounding yourself with healthy people. Uh, I, absolutely 100% still think that the 12 step programs are the place to go for finding like-minded people and for finding support. And, um, you know, so I never encourage people to not go to meetings. I would never, ever, ever do that. And all of the, not all of, but many of the negative reviews I've gotten on Amazon, you know, it's, it's people reading the title of the book and completely misunderstanding what it means. You know, I've, I've had many people reach out to me and say, Oh, so you think you can just get sober by yourself? Huh? And I said, no, <laughs> I don't. I mean, is it possible? Again, I don't generally like to speak in absolutes. I'm sure somebody's done it. I'm sure it's been done. It's not an approach I would recommend. Um, it's, I didn't do it. I, I could, I don't think I could have. Um, but no, absolutely not alone. I, I think we are social creatures and we, you know, our lives change depending on who we surround ourselves with. And if we surround ourselves with, with healthy people that are working towards managing emotions better and building real intimate connections with each other, I think that's essential. I think that's huge. So, so that's a big, that's a big emphasis in my steps. And then acceptance is a huge one. Um, you know, for step 11, I wanted to, I was torn on whether to include prayer because I do believe in the power of prayer. I just don't believe that there is anything supernatural going on. I think that, you know, if I wake up in the morning and I say, you know, may I be, may I be well today? May my family be well, all that kind of stuff it has an impact on how I feel and it helps it, it affects my focus. Um, it grounds me a little bit. So I, I think it's a good practice and I think it's helpful, uh, but I didn't include it in the steps that I wrote because I was just too concerned, like, especially cause it's step 11, you know, people have gotten all the, almost all the way through the book and then they're like, ah, he was doing so well. And then he mentioned prayer. Um, you know, so I didn't include it in there because I feel like it's too nuanced and, you know, maybe I'll, I'll put it in there in some capacity in the next version or something, but it's really just meditation. I have found meditation to be one of the most powerful tools for me, uh, specifically mindfulness meditation. And I don't do it nearly as often as I should, but um, you know, the, the practice of it, in my, in my experience, Nearly all of my, I want to say all, but again, I'm trying to not speak in absolutes. Uh, nearly all of my self-soothing, addictive type behaviors have just come from some sort of deficit in my ability to regulate my emotions, you know, or, or be okay with unregulated emotions or sit with unregulated emotions. You know, so not just my ability to make myself feel better if I'm feeling poorly, but to be able to just feel sad, angry, lonely, 
anxious and just feel it and not immediately need to make it go away to sort of desensitize myself to the to the fear that comes up when I'm uncomfortable. You know, there's this there's a fear that I have when I get when I feel discomfort that this is never going to go away. I'm going to feel if I feel this way and I don't make it go away, it's never going to go away. And the practice of just being able to feel it and to know that it's transient, um, transient, not transient, transient, yeah, (laughs) Uh, is huge, is huge. Um, So yeah, and then, you know, step step 12, I talk about uh, just teaching other people, just passing it along, which I still think is one of the most uh, helpful parts of recovery is being of service in some way. I have a whole bunch to say about sponsorship and stuff like that. I won't get into that right now. If if anyone wants to ask me about it, I'm happy to get on my soapbox about all that. Um, But, uh, and I would say probably the biggest, another one of the biggest changes that I made in, in my own approach to the program and put in the book was the step six and seven, which was initially just a very, very passive sort of thing. Um, Or at least, if you read it right out of the big book, it appears passive. People have added more to it and made it more of an active process. But in the original, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous 12-step book, it was very passive. It was you you ask, you get ready, and then you ask God to remove your character defects. And I have that be sort of a much more cognitive behavioral type interactive process. And I'm, I'm happy to talk about that more for anyone who's interested. Um but yeah, that was a jumbled mess of a description of my book. But the- <laughs> actually, that was great. And that's a good segue now into uh, questions and answers. And um, if you want, I-, I could share a um, screenshot of the steps, but let's go into questions and answers. Um, and we'll start with Salem, who has his hands up. Hi, uh, Jeffrey. Thank you, uh, as always, uh, for your wisdom. Uh, let, let me ask you this. You, you've been in several addictions. What do you think of the premise that food addiction has a special twist because we do have to face the, the substance in some way or another uh, e- e- each, each day? And I've sometimes heard AA people say, you know, it's uh, OA is a kind of a graduate school because of this challenge. What do you think of that? I absolutely agree with that. I mean, it, it's, I think every addiction has its own special twist. And, you know, I think everyone's a little bit, everything's a little bit different. And, um, you know, everyone's constellation of addictions and things that sort of press their dopamine button is a little different. And, you know, I've met, I've met people in, in, you know, uh, sex and love addiction meetings who, you know, have zero problems with drugs and alcohol. And then I've met people who do, you know, it's just, it's so, it's so individual and it's so unique um, to everybody, but yeah, the eating stuff is so, so hard because you have to eat, you have to eat. And it's very, it's about finding a balance in something that we're naturally not good at self-regulating. You know, we don't have that thing that's that normies have where they can just be like i have eaten enough i'm done and my body has what it needs and i'm going to stop um and uh yeah so i feel like that's a big part of it and and all of the all of the addictions or compulsive behaviors i should say even you know codependency we need relationships. You know, it's, it's, it's a more nuanced thing. It's not black and white and yeah, stuff like alcohol and drugs is a little bit easier in that, or I should say simpler in that regard. And that it is pretty black and white, right? It's like, you don't drink, you don't use. Um, But no, this is, it's different. It's different with the behavioral addictions for sure. Thank you. And I failed to introduce myself as a food and volume addict. Thank you, Jeffrey. Welcome. Uh, Jenny, you're up next. Hi, Jeffrey. Hi, everybody. I'm Jenny, sugar addict and compulsive eater. And um, I have not read your entire book yet, but I have it. And when I read 12 step books, I like to read the chapters as I'm working that particular step. And I've got now I have five different books, kind of the secular bent that I will read next time I go through the steps. 
And I just have to say one thing I really like is that these chapters are short and it's like you get to the point, it's easy to digest. And I just really appreciate that. Um, I did recently read step 10 because I'm in this alternative step group and this was the step of the month. And I just really liked some of the practical stuff you had in there. Like one of the things you said was, Next time you get into an argument with a coworker, friend, or family member, practice acknowledging your part in the conflict. And that is just like such a basic thing, you know, and it's like, it's good to be reminded of a lot of those, um, those kinds of things. I also liked, um, so I did read like the stuff at the back because it was new to me talking about relapse um, and, and lapsing. And in OA, most people talk about lapses as slips. Um, and then we all, we also have relapses. And so I just, I enjoyed reading about that. And also I like the extra tools that you added, um, which I also feel like that OA has nine tools and it would be really great if they added some of the ones you talked about, like exercise, nutrition, sleep, fun, and communication. I think that those were all good. So even though I haven't read the entire book, I read like the parts that are really new to me. And next time I do the steps, I'm definitely going to uh, use your book. And also when I was going online, I noticed that there is a companion workbook that looks like it's just like a a document and it looks like it's free, but um, it has, I mean, that's really great. It said something about how you were involved in it, but I don't know. Um, But it's always great to have a workbook to try out when you're working the steps. Yeah, I am. I'm very slowly working on the workbook. That workbook was written by somebody else. She did seek permission for me to, to write it. And, and to my understanding is not profiting off of it, which also wouldn't bother me that much. But um, no, if, if, I, if you're finding that helpful, that's, that's awesome. But I do, I do have one in the works and I am hoping to finish it eventually. Cool. Yeah. She's not, it doesn't seem to be for profit. It's just there to (laughs) download if you want, but anyway, thanks. Thank you so much for speaking today. Thank you. Uh, Thanks, Jenny. Rob, you're up next. Thanks, Melissa. And thank you, Jeffrey, for for coming today. We really appreciate your time. Uh, You mentioned something about sponsorship and I wondered if you wanted to say a few more words about your thoughts on that. Yeah. Um, when it comes to sponsorship, I just think I, I think it's really important to acknowledge the fact that not everybody is cut out to be a sponsor. Um, and I think there needs to be some really uh, clear boundaries around sponsorship and what it is and what's expected and, and what is, you know, in my opinion, a sponsor is somebody who has worked a program that has worked for them and they show you how they did it. And that's it. A sponsor is not somebody who tells you when you can start dating. A sponsor is not somebody who tells you what to do about your mental health conditions. A sponsor is not somebody who tells you what groceries to buy. It's, it's, they, there's just the, the boundaries get way too, um, way too blurry. I think people, you know, and, and I, and I get it. Someone's entering recovery and they're feeling a ton better and they feel like they found the secret to life. And they feel like they can opine on every aspect of this person's life who's coming to them. And, and I think I think there are a lot of people that just are not cut out to be sponsors, shouldn't be sponsors. And that's OK. It doesn't mean there's anything wrong with them. It's just it's a very unique skill to be able to hear someone's story, know when to talk. No, I, I, I only I'm obviously biased because as a therapist, this is what is drilled into our heads is how you know, uh, it's not just what you say, it's what you don't say. It's what you let the other person figure out and, you know, discover for themselves. And it's not easy. And there were a lot of therapists, there are a lot of therapists who have become therapists, and have been doing therapists for 20 years, who have no business doing therapy, in my opinion. You know, so it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's a unique skill. And if you don't have it, that's okay. And you can be of service and you can help people in a lot of other ways. But I, I feel like sponsorship is too much right now. It's, it's, it's too unclear what it means and what the boundaries should be around it. And I think a lot of people, especially people early in recovery can have some really unfortunate experiences with sponsors who um, are uh, overconfident in their own credentials and um 
yeah so so i, I that's that's my opinion on it and um you know it, it, uh, if you have an experience getting sober and it worked for you share that you know share because that's the one thing you can never be wrong about really is what did i do and what do i and how do i think it helped me that you stick with that that's that's great and that can change still change lives and be very helpful and li- just listening learning how to listen and just be there for someone else and oh i hear you're going through this and that's huge and so you know I, w- I wish we had a sponsored training program but that would just be guys no way to make that happen um but yeah that's my that's my two cents great thank you so much uh alan you're up next I'm uh, Alan, a recovery food addict. Uh, thanks for sharing, Jeff. I think it's the second time I've heard you at one of these things. You know, the, the, one of the things you said that really stuck with me is that the the essence of addiction is having an emotional state that's uncomfortable and a fear that it'll never go away. So the only thing I know how to do is comfort it with food or alcohol or behavior. And the essence of recovery is learning to self-soothe, to manage my emotional states without having to pick up in any form. When you said that, I thought of the concept of emotional intelligence, which essentially is like identifying this is my feeling to learning to sort of manage it internally. And then three, learning to manage it within a social context because often these emotions damage relationships. I wonder if you could just kind of speak to emotional intelligence and the role it plays in recovery. It's, it's a critical skill and it's, it's one of the, one of the things that I found to be probably the most dismissed in meetings because I, you know, and obviously, you know, I'm hearing what I'm hearing and, you know, other people may have heard different things and, you know, I'm hearing the things that sound wrong to me and maybe missing other people who are saying the right thing, but um, get out of self, right? Get out of yourself, get out of yourself, get out of yourself. And that certainly, in my opinion, has a place. And there are absolutely times that I can become far too self-obsessed. But I think that can be misunderstood to mean that any sort of self that like getting to know yourself and taking your emotional reaction to life seriously doesn't mean believing it, but taking it seriously and validating your own feelings and learning what they mean about you and the way that you relate to the world is so important is so so important and you know sometimes when people are in a place where they're really introspective and you know they're they're you know trying to learn more about their emotions and what makes them tick and someone says to them you know get out of yourself i think that's that's doing them a disservice so yeah the the emotional intelligence the emotional awareness that's again where i think mindfulness comes in too is just watching it's it's this watching of your internal experience without judgment without trying to change it so that you can gain more insight i love the phrase you know sort of becoming a connoisseur of your neuroses you just get to know your own stuff really well and that absolutely helps you navigate it and so so i think it's it's a critical critical skill for every human being on the planet to be able to identify emotions that are arising um, and to know how to, you know, respond to them and manage them, not necessarily make them go away, but to manage them. I hope that answered your question. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Alan. Uh, Georgie, you're up next. Thank you. Hi, Georgie, compulsive overeater. Thank you, Jeffrey, for joining us. Um, I had two quick, what I think will be quick questions. The first was, as um, you said, a fellow addict in recovery, was there any um, like one book or piece of literature that was pivotal to your recovery that you could recommend today? And then the second question I have is around, um, I wondered if you had any opinions on when it comes to some 12-step fellowships can be very, very strict when it comes to abstinence. And say, for example, um, you know, unless you have 30 days of abstinence, you can't chair a meeting or you can't even put out chairs and you have to like sit at the back and be quiet. And so did you have an opinion on, do you think that encourages sobriety and abstinence or do you think that could do more harm than good? I'd be really interested to know your thoughts. 
Good, good questions. Um, in terms of in terms of books that I used, really, I, I'd say one of the most eye opening books for me was the book by Eckhart Tolle, "The Power of Now." That was the that was the first sort of introduction into like this idea that you know the, just pure awareness and mindfulness and presence in itself can be a healing thing. Um, you know, I have uh, he I can I'll take some of what he says and leave the rest. Now I think he's, I think he can be a mixed bag, but that book kind of opened the the doorway for me to, um, to look at that. And then there's a, there's another, I mean, it depends on how much, it depends on what kind of books you like to read and, and stuff like that. There's one called Buddha's brain, which really goes into the details of, of through mindfulness meditation and, um, um, contempl- contemplative sort of practices, what happens in the brain, the long-term changes, things like that, which I think is, again, it's science-based and it's like, oh, look, this is, this is backed by research that if I do this, it will, you know, that's the kind of stuff I, I like and uh, need in my recovery. When it comes to the really strict meetings, I, I have a lot of feelings about it. I have mixed feelings. Um, you know, I've met people who, you know, I'm not sure how many of you are familiar with uh, Pacific Group. Uh, you know, I've met people in Pacific Group, which is like, from what I know, one of the most strict. Um, you know, and I've met people in CEA How, who, you know, that's got a lot more structure and stuff. And I think it works for some people. Um, you know, by our by our nature in inactive addiction, we tend to lack structure and boundaries and regularity. And I think having that in a meeting or having that in a program can be really beneficial to people and it can give them a sense of stability and a sense of purpose and a sense of regularity and predictability and stuff like that. So I think that's, I think that's good in a way, but I also think it can be overdone and, you know, it can be, I think it can cause harm too. Whether it causes more harm than good, I don't know. Um, when a meeting is telling you just making a blank, blanket statement about antidepressants and saying you don't oh, need antidepressants. Phone, Papa, what are you doing? He's on the phone. So how- um, <laughs> what was I saying? I'm very easily distracted. This is my ADD. Um, antidepressants thank you um so you know if a meeting's telling you what medication to take that's a that's a big problem that's a big i don't agree with that and even remotely um you know so i think it's about a balance it's about finding a balance and it's also individual i think there are some people that respond well to structure and strict a strict approach and then there are people like me who as soon as you tell me what to do i just i bristle and i'm like oh no listen to me hear me out give me your feedback couch it in take this if you'd like it (laughs) don't take it if you don't want it don't tell me what to do don't tell me what has to happen don't don't tell me what is absolutely true in my life you know it's that just drives me absolutely bonkers but it works for some people and that's okay and that's fine Uh, so thank you and uh, Jim, you're up with with a question. Well, two things just a comment. I just found secular coda in the last week, codependence, and I just would we had to talk, Jeffrey, about how you might and they've got your steps on the front page of their website. So we had to think about how to make you an organizing point for all of these other fellowships. But the uh, the point I stuck in the chat, I'll say it again, is I had heard that you really aren't particularly webbed to the to 12 steps as the number 12. I, I found it a very helpful way for personal growth, but I think it's just one of many. And there are a lot of people in our fellowship who are, they treat the 12 steps almost the way other people treat the deity. And I think and I'd just like to hear you sort of say, speak to, you know, how important the number 12 is in these particular 12 ways of having a better life. Not at all. Uh, the, the the reason I wrote, the reason I did 12 was because 
there is a 12 step program and I wanted it to mirror that enough so that people felt like the, the two, they could do the two together, right? Like they could, they could bring my book to meetings and it would help them through the same program. And if it's like, you know, if I merge step, you know, six and seven, it's going to be all weird. And so it's really just more about, about giving people who are already in 12 step programs, a sense that like, this is, this is compatible with what they're doing. They don't need to leave their meetings or anything to, to work, you know, the program mm-hmm. through my book. Um, that's the only, that's the only reason for it. I think you could, I think you could rewrite depending on how you word it. I think you could rewrite, you know, the recovery process in, you know, 24 steps. I think you could do it in, you know, three phases, I think you could do it a lot of, I think there's a lot of different ways you could frame it. Um, So I I don't think the number 12, I don't find that to be sacred in any way. Actually, I think, I think it is shaky. I think it did come from a sacred text actually. Well, no, I mean, I don't personally find it like, it's not sacred to me, but yes, I, I know there's, and, and that was, you know, part of a concern too, is like, I don't want it to, you know, seem like I'm, um, advocating that or anything, but I do plan on writing a, another book that's not for people in program. That's just very, very general, and I, I plan on framing it differently. But that just goes on my list of plans that are very slowly happening. Thank you, uh, Jason. You're up next. Hi, Jeffrey. Thanks for taking your time on the Sunday with all of us. This is super, super helpful to me. I'm brand new at um, this. I just started joining OA meetings a couple of weeks ago. Welcome. Uh, Thanks. Uh, um, I was inspired. My brother joined a Narcotics Anonymous uh, meeting, a couple of meetings up in Chicago where he's at. And um, one of the things that really has motivated him uh, are these, uh, they, they give you little keychains, you know, when you hit your 30 mm-hmm. day mark. Like, and, and you had sort of answered, answering the first question, talked about how, you know, when you're not using, you know, hard drugs or alcohol or whatever, like there's a, there's a, clear delineation it's black and white and you know i mean i quit smoking 31 years ago and i can say you know there was a hard cutoff but how do you um i guess maybe in your own experience define sobriety uh when it comes to food addiction or how do you you know i mean where's the little keychains you know how does it how does it work again i'm super new so i might be asking a question that a lot of other people are no, it's, it's, it's a great question there are probably you know since i've i have limited time in the oa i would say i mean limited amount of time that i've been in oa meetings um you know i would say i'm probably not the best person to answer that question uh for me and what i for what i consider my own sobriety with food it's not, it's not black and white. It's, it's, it's a relationship with food um, that is non-obsessive and non-destructive for me, you know? Um, and that can even include things like orthorexia where I'm so hyper-focused on eating only healthy foods that, you know, that can be damaging as well. I can get burnt out and resentful and, you know, end up crashing and stuff like that. So yeah, there's no, there's no, um, the, the thing that one of the things I do think is important about, you know, food sobriety, sexual sobriety, relationship sobriety, things like that is to try and is to actually try and make it as clear cut as possible to sort of go into lawyer mode when you're making your plan and just to make it as specific as possible. So you at least have a way to know, like, am I doing my plan? Am I not? Um, but even that I think needs to be sort of a living document and something that changes over time, not something that you change by yourself on a whim, right. but you know, something that you, you are open to, to changing and, and working on. I hope that answers the question. That's super helpful. Thanks a bunch. Yeah. Uh, thanks, Jason. Next up is Danny. Hi. Hi. Uh, hey, welcome Jason and all the newcomers, Jeffrey. Thank you very much uh, for your time today. I've got your book on Kindle, and this was a good reminder that I haven't finished it yet, just like a lot of other books that I have, uh, but I'm pretty close to the end, but I'll uh, get back to it. I wanted to thank you for saying that everyone, in, in your opinion, everyone is not cut out to be a sponsor, mm. and I've been in OA for 
a long time, but I've never been a sponsor because I've never had the period of abstinence that, you know, long timers have suggested that that's not the best service if I'm not, I don't have what I can't give away. Um, what do you think about me, uh, having somebody report their food to me or just kind of being an accountability buddy? Mm-hmm. But some people call that a food sponsor. So I don't want to, you know, do that. What, what do you think about, about that? I think that, I think that would, I think that'd be great. I think that would be great if you feel like you are able to listen and just be there for somebody and provide that support. I think that's great. And I, I, I'm not a big fan of having to slap a label on that. Um, but you know, I, I, I understand that there's, you know, there's customs and stuff like that. So I, I, you know, I would say if, if that's something that you find mutually helpful, I, I think it's fine. I think it's fine to do that. Okay. All right. Yeah. And just kind of being a friend in recovery, I and guess. But just, but just to also be clear about what your, what your role is and what you're doing and what the boundaries are and this and that. And if some, you know, if he, if this person starts asking you questions and saying, you know, like, what do you think about this? You can just be, be very comfortable saying, Oh, I don't know. <laughs> like that's, I don't know. I, I would talk to some other people about that. I really think we should all like have a board we go to rather than just one sponsor we need like we're like a group you know like a small a small feedback group i think i've always found to be the most helpful for for personal growth in relationship with other people because you get multiple points of view and you know people can sort of you know that every everyone's sort of supporting everybody which is why i've always i've always preferred smaller 12-step meetings to to larger ones I'd, i'd like just a good sort of like five person step study is is so so helpful to me thanks a lot thank you jeffrey uh thanks danny for your question and andrea you're up next yeah hi um thank you very much jeff i really appreciate your lens onto the whole you know, question about the 12 you know practicing the 12 steps um you know you mentioned and and i like this way the third wave therapy being mindfulness uh, and radical self-acceptance um for someone who's got over 30 years sobriety this is where i'm at right um and can so it's like it's all very muddled to me in terms of you know we talk about meditation we talk about mindfulness and then we talk about radical self-acceptance and they all sort of seem to be dropped into the meditation box right mm. and i was just you know curious if perhaps if you would maybe delineate it a little bit and then also talk a little you know radical self so radical acceptance right is a fairly new frontier and i was just curious about like how who who are you listening to um, so when it comes to radical acceptance, I mean, that particular phrase, the, the only place I've heard it used frequently is in the field of uh, dialectical behavioral therapy. They use that as a tool. I don't make a big distinction between, at least the way I use it, I don't make a big distinction between radical acceptance and mindfulness. Um, I would say radical acceptance is just a a portion of mindfulness. It's the act of just being without judgment and observing whatever's, whatever's going on. Um, uh, Observing it sort of like you're on a train watching the scenery pass by, you know, just like, there it is, there it is, there it is. That's what it is. Giving it a label if you want a non-judgmental label, but just, yeah. Um, And so that's, that's me is mindfulness. Radical acceptance is part of mindfulness. And then uh, what were some of the other things you wanted, you were talking like, like meditation. I think meditation is its whole, you know, people conflate meditation and mindfulness a lot too. And you know, I think there's a big difference there. Um, yeah, well, that, that's sort of what I was saying. Cause I, I treat, you know, meditation to me is different from mm-hmm. mindfulness. Right. right. Um, and, and, and then, you know, with this, you know, you're hearing radical acceptance a lot um, mm-hmm. you know, in, in, and it's just it's in, in, in the in the rooms and it's just sort of like it's it seems to be conflating everything yeah i think radical acceptance is a good tool to use i think it's just a portion of the overall 
practice of mindfulness, um, I think it's maybe a little bit easier to digest for a lot of people because mindfulness itself can kind of be complicated for anyone who's not experienced it or practiced it before. I've, I've, I've taught some mindfulness groups and there's often a lot of people that are like, what are you watching my thoughts? What are you taught? Like, how do you watch a thought? You know, and it's just, it's very new to them. So I, I like terms like radical acceptance that are a little more easy to digest and, you know, little, little components of mindfulness. But yeah, when it comes to meditation, I mean, I think meditation, you can practice, you can meditate and practice mindfulness. You can meditate and not practice mindfulness. You can practice mindfulness while not meditating. (laughs) So there's, there's some overlap, but they're not, Oh my God. I just saw, I I know someone whose sponsor pressured her to join her MLM. That is absolutely horrendous. Um, Sorry. I just saw that in the chat. Um, um, So yeah, I think, I think meditation can be a lot of different things too. You can have, you know, uh, loving kindness meditation. You can have just relaxation meditation, you know, I I think it's important to, 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 so I have to close the chat. <laughs> uh, that was really funny. That was a good one. I get it. I get it. Thank you very much. I, yeah. Sorry. Sorry. No, 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 no. It's just that like, and I go, oh my God. And then there's loving kindness meditation, right? Yeah. It's just, I never feel like I'm quite meditating, you know, my approach to meditation, even if I'm, you know, it's like, okay, I can do quiet. Or I can do all these other things, right? So I just appreciate the opportunity to ask questions. Yeah, I, I'm a fan of starting with mindfulness meditation. Start with mindfulness meditation. It's very similar. It's very similar. It's very simple. It's, you know, you're just sitting and picking an object of focus and focusing on it. And when thoughts and feelings come in, which they will every half second, and that's okay, you notice them and then draw your attention back. That's That's what I like to start with. And then, you know, if people find that they want to move on to other things or, you know, practice loving kindness, then then fine. But, you know, I think it should start with a formal sitting mindfulness meditation. And then when you understand how mindfulness works and what that mechanism is of turning inward and going, oh, this is happening. Then bringing that just into your daily life, I think, is great. Mindful eating, mindfully walking from one building to the next, you know, so. Great. Thank you. And we will end with our last question from Janine. Hi, thank you so much for um, um, this presentation. Um, I am one of those OCD people that read most of the book last night and this morning. And uh <laughs> Thank you. Because that's part of my little twist in compulsive compulsivity. Uh, But my question is, you know, and and this may it may be a question for you, Jeffrey. I don't know. But it seems like in the secular groups, there isn't as much structure. There are more books like this one and this one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm like, how do you find a sponsor that uses whatever secular approach there is? You know, it's, it's a little mm-hmm. frustrating even to mm-hmm. find a sponsor that then might ascribe to this one, or maybe they decided they use a different method. And, mm-hmm. you know, is it just important to just get started and, you know? Yeah. And I, I think, I think that's important. And I think, you know, ultimately the skill that's the most important is learning how to create your own structure in your, in your life. Um, but uh, yeah. And, and one of the things with, with my book, like if somebody reads my book or they read, you know, any of the other books and they find a set of steps that works for them, I think it's okay to say, Hey, I want to do it this way, you know, and find somebody who's just mm-hmm. going to sort of look through it and be like, okay, yeah, I can, I can do it with you this way, or we can do it together or something like that. Um, I think that's fine. Um, and if they're too rigid to do that, then that, then you just keep looking for someone else. Perhaps. Yeah. And yeah. would you suggest partnering with someone since there's such a shortage in both traditional and, um, and, and let me just say this too. I've been in and out of the room since 1987 and I just can't, I couldn't stomach the God thing. So this has been refreshing and I'm back into physical recovery, but it's the character development, which is what drove me back in, Mm -hmm. you know, the food issue. Yes. That that's, 
I'm very well aware of when I'm in recovery and not in recovery in that regard, but it's the character development is why I'm back. Mm-hmm. And, and I just want to get on with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I think, uh, I think it's fine to, to do that in whatever way, in whatever way works for you. And yeah, it's, you know, structure is a double-edged sword, you know, in, in some ways it can be really necessary. And then in some ways it can be sort of stifling and, and not allow you to work the program in your own individual way that best suits you. Um, and so, yeah. And that's hard for newcomers too. You know, if, for people who've maybe been around for a little while, it's a little easier to be like, okay, I'm going to take, you know, I'm going to be assertive and ask for what I need and find the people that, you know, are going down the same path as I am for newcomers. It's, it's tough, I think. Um, so yeah, it's, it's not an easy, I don't think there's an easy answer to that, unfortunately. Thank you. Other, other than for everybody to use my book all the time. <laughs> That's a great ending. And um, I just wanted to say again, thank you so much, Jeffrey, for your insights. They have been incredibly helpful. And we really appreciate you coming to speak at this meeting. Thank you for joining us today. If you'd like to support our efforts, please visit secularovereaters.org and consider making a donation. Thank you.